Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Youth Politics Action, a podcast created by the Youth Political Assembly to help youth across Canada connect with and gain insight on politics and government. Each episode, one of our hosts will interview a Canadian politician to find out their visions, aspirations, and advice they have for youth. My name is Galicia Gordon, I am a BC Ambassador for the Youth Political Assembly, and I am your host for today. Today I am speaking to Paul Manley, MP for Nanaimo Ladysmith since 2019. Raised in a political family, Paul Manley developed a keen interest in social and economic justice, environmental stewardship, and politics, issues who have formed who he is now. As a researcher, filmmaker, and communication specialist, MP Paul Manley has committed his skills and knowledge to the creation of media that educates, informs, and adds to a public dialogue on issues of importance. So, Paul Manley, would you mind introducing yourself, your current title, and what that entails? Sure. I'm Paul Manley. I am the Member of Parliament for Nanaimo Ladysmith. And uh, so that means I represent uh, this community, Nanaimo, Parksville, or Nanaimo, Lanceville, and Ladysmith, and the, the uh, communities of Nanawas, Staminas, and Nanaimo uh, to Gabriel Island to the House of Commons. So I'm the, the local representative here in Nanaimo, Ladysmith. Wonderful. And so you've been a Canadian politician serving as the MP for Nanaimo Ladysmith since 2019. Um, before receiving this title, what were your previous paths in politics? Um, well, my, my previous career paths were, um, I started out coming out of high school as a musician. Um, so I started playing in nightclubs uh, when I was 18. And um, I played in high school band, played trombone, but I picked up uh, electric bass uh, when I was uh, 17, 18. I started playing at mm-hmm. nightclubs. And then I, I studied jazz at Humber College in Toronto um, and played professionally for about 10 years and, uh, you know, played at festivals and in uh, nightclubs and bars and pubs and wherever I could and played different styles of music. Um, Mm. I then uh, went, I'd I'd gone to school for computer engineering because I thought I'd, I'd try that out as well and um, didn't want to spend my life in front of a computer. Uh, Yeah. Ha ha. And uh, (laughs) so then I went into broadcasting and I got a diploma in broadcasting uh, at Algonquin college in Ottawa. And I was born and raised on Vancouver Island uh, but I moved to Ottawa when I was 16. So when I graduated from broadcasting, I moved back out to BC. Uh, I, I um, worked at a nonprofit uh, artist-run center in Vancouver called Video In uh, for six years mm-hmm. as the equipment manager and as a trainer and did lots of uh, training with um, people wanting to learn how to use that kind of equipment, working with documentary makers and uh, video art uh, producers and lots of people who are... Um, kind of marginalized in the media industry and um, I worked in the television industry as well as a editor and a cameraman and then I've been making my own uh, films and documentaries uh, since 1991 so uh, I my last film was completed last year uh, in the spring of 2019 after I became an MP and uh, mm-hmm. so make you know social justice and environmental documentaries and 
I got into that because my mother was was making films, and um, I didn't think rock and roll was going to change the world a whole lot, uh, despite what Bono might have had to say about it. Um, and so that I thought, you know, filmmaking was a really good way to to um, talk about issues that were important to me, and I wanted to educate people about. Hmm. Nice. So you've definitely had many exploratory paths um, throughout your career. Yeah. Um, yeah. And when you were in my shoes as a senior high school student, what plans do you have for your future in terms of studies and career route? Well, I was really focused on music uh, when I was your age. So, you know, I started I started uh, doing shows while I was still in high school and going over and playing in, in uh, the nightclubs over in Quebec where the age of majority was 18. So I could be in bars and, um, and, and played in bars there. And I wanted to study, study music and I did. Um, uh, that, was, that was really the focus for me when I was in high school. I was always politically active. So I was politically active in high school. I was involved mm-hmm. in um, a number of environmental organizations and um, mm-hmm. an organization called Youth Action for Peace, which was a disarmament group. And when I was playing music, we would do all kinds of benefit shows to raise money for different causes, um, social justice and environmental causes. So I was always very politically aware and politically active and focused that way, but, you know, just love being on stage. Mm -hmm. Nice. And what are your suggestions for youth who would like to become more politically involved and engaged as you were when you were in high school? Well, I think I, I first joined a political party when I was about 12 years old. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I, I got involved actually the first time I was involved in a campaign. uh, I think I was seven dropping leaflets so you know it uh the the youngest person um really active on my campaign to get me elected this young guy oliver i think he's 13 he was uh coming into the office and making phone calls and so you know you can join a political party um you can be engaged in the policy process of that of that party you can work on Mm -hmm. getting people elected you know, we believe uh, in the Green Party that the age for voting should be lowered to 16 uh, so that it becomes mm-hmm. part of what you do when you're in high school and it, mm-hmm. and uh, you're actually actively engaged in the political process while you're still in school. But um, yeah. there's lots of things that you can do in the meantime. And, and, and um, yeah, I just followed my passions in terms of uh, politics and the issues that I was concerned about. So um, peace and disarmament was big at that time because we always had the, the, the you know, the specter of nuclear war hanging over our heads. And so um, mm-hmm. now it's climate change. And so a lot of young people are involved in the environmental movement. And after I got out of school, like I had uh, part-time jobs uh, when I was a uh, professional musician, I I did kind of passion jobs uh, working for Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth, um, Western Canada Wilderness Committee, uh, you know, d- you know, helping to uh, promote their messages, and so I was always constantly learning about about their campaigns and what they were doing, and educating myself and trying to educate people around me. So nice. Um, 
How can local Canadian supporters of your party assist your party's mission and work? Well, uh, the, the number one way is to, if you join the party, you can be involved in the policymaking process. So, mm-hmm. you know, you can put forward policy ideas. We are coming up to our uh, biannual uh, policy convention. So mm-hmm. we had to uh, postpone it this year because we had a leadership race. We had, um, um, so we, we will be having that uh, coming up probably early next year. And so our policy uh, process is open right now. And so I think you have until in, into the first week of November to submit uh, policy ideas. And um, so people can get involved that way. And, you know, we, we believe in participatory democracy. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, a key, a key thing to do there. Um, and then we always encourage you, uh, you know, people to get involved in in election campaigns, and mm-hmm. uh, they can be a lot of fun. They're like community events. People really connect and and uh, become family after these campaigns. You make some good, long-lasting friendships with uh, the people that you're working with. Um, we kind of approach it in that sort of team spirit and community spirit, and. Uh, you know, just engage people with whatever skills and abilities they have to bring to the table to, mm-hmm. to help on campaigns. Wonderful. What has been the largest highlight of serving as MP to Nanaimo Lady Smith? Well, it's a real honor and privilege to represent this community. Mm-hmm. Um, Nanaimo Lady Smith is within the traditional unceded territories of Nanawis, Dominus, uh, Nanaimo and Lyaxon First Nations and um, you know I'm I'm a big believer in in reconciliation I've known about resident residential schools for decades now I did a film mm-hmm. uh, that was broadcast across Canada and around the world in uh, 1996 about uh, residential schools and the mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it was a historic per- perspective from a whistleblower who wrote letters in 1898. And I think that, um, you know, that's a key thing for me is reconciliation means uh, economic reconciliation. It means uh, um, ensuring that First Nations have the resources, the access to resources in their traditional territory, Um the ability to take care of uh, their people and deal with the historic wrongs that have been committed against Indigenous mm-hmm. people. So that's, you know, something I'm I'm really passionate about and, and wanting to uh, work hard, you know, to see through that uh, that uh, the government respects the words that we say, you know, and implements the uh, recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's Inquiry, mm-hmm. and that we implement the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People and actually move mm-hmm. forward in a way with concrete steps uh, to, um, to recognize what's been done and to fix, fix it as the, the best that we can. So. Yeah, certainly. Your work is definitely really inspiring. Um, As a follow-up to the last question, 
What has been the most affecting low light of serving as MP and working in government overall? Um, well, it's, it's a challenging job and, uh, you know, you start out thinking that you're, that you want to work on certain things and, uh, mm-hmm. um, the next thing you know, you're in a global pandemic mm-hmm. <laughs> and, <laughs> and dealing with, with, um, all kinds of other issues and, and, and problems. And it's a challenge. I, I'm, I'm up for the challenge. I'm, I'm working hard, mm-hmm. um, and doing the best that I can. The thing that's I think the most difficult is just seeing the how um how much people are having a hard time, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like there's a lot of people suffering right now, uh economically. There's a lot of stress and anxiety related to the economic problems and to the spread of COVID nineteen and people who are vulnerable, you know, to to this virus, whether they're um, elderly or they have compromised immune systems. Um, so I don't necessarily call it a low light, but I just say, I would just say that, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't on my radar when I was elected, uh, a year and a half ago that I would be a representative during a pandemic, but, that's the challenge that mm-hmm. we're in, and that's that's the work that needs to be done right now is to ensure that we get through this and that that people get the help that they need, and that we learn the lessons. Um, there's so many things that we knew before this pandemic that were a problem, but the the pandemic has really laid bare uh, the inequality in our country, the mm-hmm. the lack of uh, resources. Um, the holes in our mm-hmm. social safety net, you know, the problems in long-term care. I was talking about the issues of, of uh, inadequate uh, long-term care facilities uh, mm-hmm. a year ago. And, um, you know, it's just been tragic to see that, that those deficiencies in our long-term care system have led to so many deaths. And um, also wealth inequality and the amount of poverty in this country is outrageous given that we have, you know, some very, very wealthy people in this country. Um, and, you know, people we call essential workers who are doing low wage jobs, many of them minimum wage jobs in service, the service sector economy um, uh, are the, are the other group that's really affected by the pandemic. So people who, who live in, low-income housing have to take public transit to their Mm low-wage jobs uh, are the ones that are are getting um, COVID as well. And at the same time, you know, in the last six months, the 20 richest people in this country, the 20 top billionaires in this country, increased their wealth by $37 billion, uh, which, Mm -hmm. you know, is is obscene. That's uh, um, the, the billionaire class in this country owns four and a half thousand times what the average citizen owns in this country. And uh, so it's just really kind of laid bare the inequality and how that inequality affects people. So, Yeah, I I definitely, uh, that's really just eye-opening overall. have you received any backlash for decisions made in government? And if so, 
which practices have you used to not be affected by negative commentary? Well, you're not going to please uh, everybody all the time. That's for sure. In fact, any mm -hmm. decision you make, uh, any vote that I make, um, uh, there's always going to be somebody that's not happy with that. And, yes. um, you know, I, tr you know, I pledged to try to provide nonpartisan service to everybody who needs service uh, from their MP for the issues that they're mm -hmm. facing with the federal government. So we, we approach everything that way. Uh, but in terms of the political side of things, yes, you do need to come down on one side of a vote or another uh, to, you know, make a decision. You're either voting for something or against it. And, um, uh, you know, you have to have a thick skin to be in this in this uh, profession. So part of what, uh, you know, I don't sit there and look at all the nasty stuff people say about me on uh, social media. Um, mm -hmm. because social media is a very toxic space and people uh, feel that they can get away with saying any kind of nasty thing that they want in that space without any kind of consequence. And so, you know, people will say things on social media that they wouldn't say to your face. So mm -hmm. I don't spend a lot of time um, uh, on social media looking at what people have to say if people have like serious concerns about how government decisions are affecting them uh then you know then i'm happy to to have a discussion with them and see what i can do to help them in those situations but um yeah you have to have a thick skin and and uh just keep on on moving forward i i take mm -hmm. i take uh criticism uh like real criticism seriously and mm -hmm. uh, will respond to it but a lot of it's just partisan hyper-partisan kind of nonsense that you see so mm -hmm. well thank you for taking the time to um listen to you know real opinions that do need a voice yeah yeah how has and will your party ensure that canada specifically bc's community is resilient and sustainable well that's you know, key to a lot of the platforms and policies that we put forward um, mm -hmm. to, to deal with, with climate change, we need to have a circular economy. We need to make sure that we don't waste uh, energy, that we don't waste resources. And we need to ensure that our communities are resilient. And here on Vancouver Island, we only produce three to five percent of the food that we consume here and so that's a key thing that i worked on as a filmmaker and now as a member of parliament mm -hmm. is to support uh the local food movement because the the lower our carbon footprint is on on food uh the better right we 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 don't need to be trucking stuff from uh, uh california and mexico that we produce here or you know shipping stuff from across the world there's no reason to be importing garlic from China when you can grow garlic in pretty much anywhere in Canada, except for the far mm -hmm. north. You can, you know, grow mm -hmm. garlic in the in in Whitehorse if you wanted to. Uh, it may not be as big as the garlic you grow down here in Vancouver Island, but um, we need to we need to make sure that we are that uh, we're looking at uh, regenerative um, agriculture that we have a distributed uh, electrical system uh, and creating energy in our communities as much as possible um, to create resilience. 
and uh, lowering our carbon footprint, lowering our, our waste output uh, through things like a circular economy. Um, and, and a lot of that has to do with things like um, packaging and right to repair and um, corporate responsibility for the products that they create. So there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot there's a lot to do in terms of um, uh, dealing with with climate change and making our communities more resilient. And then we also need to take to take care of um, you know our own backyards. And so the um, the crash in biodiversity is something that we really need to have more focus and attention on. And so much of our of our ecosystems have been turned you know, from natural ecosystems into monoculture, um, uh, industrial forests. And that's not helpful for, for biodiversity. Um, so, you know, we need to be looking at what's going on in our own backyards. And in, in my own backyard here, the Nanaimo River watershed is 750 square kilometers. Only two square kilometers is parkland. And 10 square kilometers is in conservation area. So uh, that's a tiny amount. And um, the rest of it is all like industrial forest uh, or, or developed land. And we need to be doing more conservation right here in our own backyards to ensure that uh, we have thriving biodiversity here. And I think that, that all areas need to be looking at, at um protecting biodiversity in that way. And, and again, that's something that helps with, uh, with climate change. Great. Clearly you have really wonderful goals. What are some of the Green Party's plans for the next incoming year? Well, we continue to uh, work with the government to, to push for policies that help people. So, you know, when in mm-hmm. the, my response to the speech from the throne, um, I talked about the need for universal pharmacare, so people have the medicine that they need to, uh, um, you know, help them deal with whatever illnesses or problems that they have that they need medication for. And so too often, when people don't have medication, they, it costs us more money in the healthcare system. We need a universal mm-hmm. dental care program for the same reason. A ninety-dollar filling mm-hmm. that you don't get done uh, can end up you know, causing blood poisoning and uh, end up with a a heart operation that costs tens of thousands of dollars. So preventative medicine is key. It's really important. Um, We need to ensure that uh, women are able to get back into the the workforce. And that means uh, Mm -hmm. that we we need um, better childcare. And we've been pushing for universal childcare. We want to see uh, education um, be tuition free. So, you know, the Northern European countries all have uh, free tuition and they have a very educated population and their economies are thriving because of that. And that's something that we can do here. We need, you know, too many young people are coming out of uh, school with debts the size of a mortgage. And that's just no way to start a mm-hmm. career, a life and a family, you know? So mm-hmm. um, that's that's uh, one of the policies that we're pushing for. We've been pushing for a guaranteed livable income because our, our network, our patchwork of uh, social safety programs 
uh, has so many gaps in it and and it's all been laid to bear with the, the pandemic that the government has had to scramble to try to create different programs to meet different specific needs uh, with the guaranteed livable mm -hmm. income you would have a program in place if somebody lost their job based on automation or artificial intelligence taking their job or um, in the case of uh, emergencies, earthquakes, uh, fires, floods, all the things that we're dealing with um, based on climate change, people are displaced by those things and you need uh, funds in place to help them. A guaranteed livable income would allow somebody to go back to school for retraining without having to worry about how they're going to pay their rent or, or uh, take care of their families. It would allow mm -hmm. somebody who's a care, caregiver to, um, you know, take care of an elder member of their family and, um, uh, or, or uh, um, young children without having to worry about uh, how they pay their rent, etc. And um, so it's, you know, it's a program that, that uh, would be useful for so many reasons and it, it eliminates the bias and discrimination that is inherent in uh, in our welfare system where you know you mm -hmm. have somebody adjudicating whether you are uh, worthy you know whether you're the worthy poor or the unworthy poor and and we need to eliminate that kind of bias it would eliminate racism in the system um, and sexism and other and, and other isms um, and then uh, the climate crisis, the climate crisis, the climate crisis. So we don't have targets that are adequate. Uh, we're still dealing with uh, the, we still have the same targets that were set by the Stephen Harper conservative government and their pathetic and inadequate mm -hmm. targets. And if we're, you know, we should do what we've done with COVID, which, you know, where we listen to the health professionals and uh, the experts, we need to do the same thing with uh with climate and the experts uh, have told us the international panel on uh, climate change has, uh, or the intergovernment panel on climate change has said that uh, we need to uh, take concrete action and, and um, deal with this by 2030. And so we don't have uh, targets that match what science demands. And, and uh, you know, you can't argue with physics or chemistry. We have to, uh, we have to ensure that um, we we follow through on a real plan, that we create a real plan, that we follow through on on that plan, and have like specific goals in you know two years and five years and uh, seven years and ten years, how we're going to meet those goals. And we we don't have carbon budgets in this country. And you know, for example, Britain has a carbon budget law. Mm -hmm. that goes outside of uh, their political system so that it doesn't change every time the government changes. And they have reduced their emissions in Britain uh, over 1990, 1990 levels by 42%. At the same time, Canada has increased uh, emissions um, over 1990 levels by 24%. So we are we are climate do-nothings. We talk a lot about it in this country, but we don't take specific actions. We don't have adequate targets and we're not dealing with this crisis in the way that we need to be dealing with it. So that's absolutely key. We keep on pushing the government to uh, implement new targets and we're supposed to have new targets before uh, the end of this year and we don't have them. Mm. 
Wow, these are all wonderful plans, and I definitely wish you the best with your future endeavors. Um, these are all the questions I have, so thank you. Well, thank you. For our listeners, the Youth Politics Action Podcast are released every second Saturday. Be sure to check us out on Instagram at the Youth Political Assembly for all the news, stories, explanations, opinions, and opportunities you need to stay up to date and connected with current politics and government. Thank you all for listening.